Welcome to Conversation 360 Podcasts and another episode in our second series of Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. We showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what's taking place in and between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, and you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. In this podcast, you'll hear from Melbourne-born Michelle Garneau, who's not only a legendary restaurateur with a string of awards over a career that spans continents, she's a high-spirited, enthusiastic adventurer who's made China the canvas on which she's created a truly unique life. She came to Hong Kong from Australia knowing no one and now oversees a trio of restaurants and bars in Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Beijing that are icons in their cities, not just because of great food. It's that Michelle feels conversations that take place over meals are the very heart of a well-lived life. This conversation took place by phone with Michelle in Shanghai and me here in New York. Our phone connection is compromised at times, but I know you'll find that Michelle's engaging personality comes through loud and clear. You'll hear how Michelle got her start in the restaurant business and what she's learned along the way. She'll share her strongly held opinions on what the West can learn from China and why, even though it's gotten tougher to do business profitably in China these days, there are plenty of opportunities for the adventurous. And meanwhile, we've got to converse more, she says, and preach less. You know, America, in many people's eyes, America's always had a bit of a moral high ground to be a place of multi-ethnicity and everybody has their problems so people can live together and be tolerant and i think this sort of intolerance coming out of america right now is terrifying so i think it's even more important that conversations happen that's michelle garneau voicing concern about how dialogue has shifted between the u.s and asia noting that america is losing its lofty position elsewhere in the world in fact, she thinks there needs to be a rebalancing of Westerners' views of China. Personally, I think that the world is still riddled with the sort of white supremacy problem. Mm. You know, I just, that's my honest opinion, that so much, so often it's condescending and, you know, it's patronizing and it's superior. It's just a superior approach. Like, well, we know, you know, why doesn't China do this? Mm -hmm. Like, well, you know, how do you like being told, why don't you do this? As for China's ability to innovate and do so disruptively, she takes an interesting slant. The Chinese in business have a way of just cutting through whatever you need to do and just doing it. Mm -hmm. So, and the Western world, I think, thinks that's not fair. You know, they haven't gone, they haven't taken that step, that step, that step, that step that we would take. But they're like, I don't care about steps. And that is disruptive. As for the disparity of wealth issue. I think that there are opportunities out there and plenty of people are fine in China. Mm -hmm. the, I think that the, this disparity of wealth is a, a more of a Western, Western world problem. There is still plenty of wealth to go around in China and plenty of opportunities of things to be done. We'll talk about all this and how Hong Kong's wealth compares to mainland China, the importance of confidence in getting a business up and running, why she sees the world economy teetering on the brink, why companies who consider pulling out of China for Bangladesh and elsewhere decide to stay put, and much more. 
Welcome to Conversations 360 and this Asia and the West episode, Michelle. I'm just delighted we're doing this. Thank you for having me, Susan. I'm delighted to be here. Well, you have such an interesting story. I mean, you first came to Hong Kong. What year was that? 1984. So tell a little bit about that. I remember about this story about how you came and, and, and really started literally, as I remember the story, uh, getting a job at a street vendor food place. Did I get that right? Uh, not quite a street vendor. It was a bit okay. more fancy than that. Okay. Um, I, I went to Hong Kong to get um, a visa to go to China. And I was with some friends who, a long story, but they got jobs. They were English, so it was very easy being English to get a job in Hong Kong because it was a colony. Mm -hmm. um, and we were all going off to China together. And I decided as I was cooking at that point, I'd been cooking for about four years, um, I decided to get a job as a chef and well, as a cook. I never called myself a chef because I didn't train properly. I didn't train through the whole process. So I always felt that that wasn't the right uh, name. So um, I went to um, numerous places. I mean, Hong Kong was pretty small at the time with a pretty sort of small community. I didn't know anybody in Hong Kong, not one soul. Um, <laughs> But I went around, I went to, people were very kind and sent me, you know, to one place and another place and another place to talk to people. And it was all men, of course. And they all just laughed at me and said, are you mad? I mean, what do you want a job in a kitchen for? You can't work in a kitchen. You know, women don't work in kitchens, only as dishwasher. Um, eventually, um, I was told that I should be a waitress and if I wanted to make good money, um, I'm quite a buxom um, girl, as you'll remember, um, I'm no longer a girl, um, that I would be best off if I really wanted to make some money quickly, I could go and work in a topless bar and that would I'd really make plenty of money. I said, well, thanks very much, but that's not really my idea of what I want to do with my Anyway, um, so eventually I got a job in a place called 1997, which the funny part of that is that I didn't even know what 1997 referred to when I got there. I had no idea. Um, but um, I eventually got a, a job there and there was an Austrian head chef and he walked out after a week and said, I'm not working with any dumb woman in my kitchen. Oh, you really? get rid of her or get rid of me. Really? Yeah. And um, so... Yeah, so um, it was very much a sort of, we used to call it the, the, the Spicerdeutsch, they were nearly all Swiss German, the Spicerdeutsch Hotel Mafia. Um, you know, the guy who ran the American club, the all of the hotel chefs, all of the pastry chefs, they were all Swiss German. This guy was Austrian. Anyway, he walked out. Um, they said, can you please go? downstairs and run the new small restaurant downstairs um, as opposed to a big, bigger restaurant upstairs it was this complex it had a nightclub um, it was a nightclub and a small restaurant that had just opened um, called the Privé it had about 30 seats and a big restaurant you know that had um, oh, you know 150 seats and the first Friday night that I worked it's the funniest part of this story, it, there were, it was packed with people. I mean, it was just the whole place was just heaving. And it was within the rest in the corner of the restaurant. There was a chef's office, ridiculous, in the corner of the restaurant. So the chef oversat and oversaw the whole thing. And I walked out into that room and I went into the office to get something. And this man came over and he said, "Who are you?" 
And I said, oh, I'm, I'm Michelle, I'm the new chef. He said, well, I hope you do something about the food here. I only ever come here when I'm on a diet. And I said, oh, okay, all right, well, <laughs> let's, hope, let's hope we can fix a few things. The food was abominable. Um, so I ended up, he came back, the chef came back. Um, I became really good friends with Nino Sindona, who um, was basically one of the mafia family, the Sindona mafia family. They were very strange characters in Hong Kong at that time. Mm. Um, and uh, I did the whole thing in this small restaurant. And we had a waiting list for, you know, a week or two weeks. And the big restaurant upstairs was empty. So they eventually... Um, Robert, who I became friends with in the end, <laughs> the one who'd walked out on me, um, he eventually left and they got a new chef in and I went and ran that restaurant. So that was sort of how I started. But there wasn't much in Hong Kong at the time. There wasn't much sort of, um, let's say, there weren't that many young people um, sort of active. It wasn't a very active city. It was quite staid. It was quite stuffy because it was colony. It was quite staid because... Most of the people there were sort of either, you know, middle-level engineers. There wasn't much sort of real underground activity. And a lot of the really interesting people, of course, had left. And it was very, very divided city. And this actually is one of the reasons that I found China really interesting when I came. So even though I worked in a kitchen, I mean, I, mean, I, worked, in a, I, re, I worked in a kitchen, you know, I mean, everybody was that working-class Cantonese kids. Um, I still didn't really break through a sort of friendship level. All my Chinese friends were Swiss educated or US educated or had been to Harvard or, you know, I didn't really ever break through to this sort of more normal society. And that had a lot to do with Hong Kong and the colonial sort of overhang of well, you mentioned that the name of that place was 1997, which, of course, I'm assuming was a reference to that's the year of the handover from... Yeah, exactly. I mean, 1984, that seemed 100 years away, you know, yeah. I would never have thought I'd still be there in 1997. Well, <laughs> I was. yeah, and so much has changed since you actually began that, Michelle. So your business really took off, and, you know, years later you expanded to Shanghai and to Beijing. And what I especially love about what you've done, and I've never seen anything really like this anywhere in the world that I've been, has been... They're not just restaurants. You've really engaged people in salons to enjoy great music, to hear poetry, to yeah. have conversations. It's really uh, uh, everything about it is a work of art, and some of it literally is work of art, from the china to the chairs to everything. It's it's, it's truly remarkable how you have your love of 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 all things visual and and audible, I guess, are, are sort of shown up there. So I think this idea of conversations, not just food, but actually engaging people was one of the things that so fascinated me about you when we first met. My inspiration for that, I had a very good friend who was killed in a car accident, not very long after we opened, about two years, no, not even, yeah, about two years after we opened. And she had a place in Melbourne called Mietas, and it was a very, very, she was in the, the, you know, it was the very fancy, not fancy, it was, it, yeah, it was quite a fancy restaurant. It was a beautiful old dining room that had been a private men's club, a big building in the city. Um, and 
the the building itself had been a private men's at like the sailors and soldiers club or something like that it was quite grand mm -hmm. and she had a grand restaurant upstairs and then what was called Mieta's downstairs which was basically a place of conversation and and sitting around drinking good wine little bits of food performance poetry that sort of thing and when when I opened I she was always one of the people I really looked up to and I suppose in a in a nobody you know in my time you didn't ever call anybody a mentor or say would you be my mentor um you know they probably would have laughed at you but she was definitely one of my mentors and I remember when I opened in Shanghai and I said we've got all this space at the back you know we've got another enormous because you know space in Hong Kong is so it's small and so yeah. so you know we came to Shanghai and we had all this space and she said you should do a salon and I said oh my god you know I mean, oh god I can't imagine and you know in China I mean who'd let us talk about anything and so in a way that it took a couple of years um, for that idea to really it started in a small way you know talks and poets some poets coming and some artists they gave it to a friend who actually started a co-op um started a, a, a not-for-profit art art platform here he also arrived in i think he also arrived about 99 we opened in 99 in shanghai and i gave it to him for a year and i said look it's empty you have to do it you know it's basically got a floor you if you want lighting you have you know fancy layers put it in he was there for about I don't know, eight or nine months and he's in Shanghai and runs Playford Art Hub, which is enormously important. So I think, you know, I think it was also the time in the city that there were lots of things happening, you know, lots of energy and you know, things were new and things were exciting and you could do new things. And so in a way, it, it sort of, it's to do with what was needed and there was nothing else in, in the city at the time there was very little in shanghai that would you know sort of satiate any intellectual um um you know leanings that anybody had there was very little to listen to there was you know classical music was always you know beethoven and tchaikovsky and mm -hmm. ballet was always swan lake you know what i mean so it, it it was about delivering a you know, creating a platform, and from there it's grown. So when we when we talk now about conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what does that mean to you? What does that bring to mind? I've always thought that restaurants are not about going out and eating. That's only one part of a restaurant. I think a good restaurant actually is con is a convivial place that encourages good conversation. It's not so stuffy that you can't talk and you can't argue a bit and you can't. I think that actually conversation is essential. I mean, especially now, I think conversation is essential. And I feel that one of the jobs that I've had in life is create places that conversations can happen. So how would you say that the dialogue has shifted during the time that you've been living and working in Asia? What, what, what when you said we especially need well, it now? Oh, I think we'd especially need it now with sort of, you know, strong on politics all over the world mm -hmm. and railroading politics mm -hmm. in in both, you know, especially out of America. 
you know, this is sort of, you know, America in many people's eyes, America's always had a bit of a moral high ground to be a place of multi-ethnicity and everybody has their problems, but people can live together and be tolerant. And I think this sort of intolerance coming out of America right now is terrifying. So I think it's even more important that conversations happen. Let's talk about the world of business and how your business has changed since those days when you came to, when you first showed up in Hong Kong. Has the slowdown in the Chinese economy had an impact on your business? And generally, what's happening regarding that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think historically, you know, we could be here for five hours talking about historically. But, you know, when we started in our business, when we started, there were, I think, all through Shanghai, including cafeterias, maybe 3,000 or 5,000 restaurants. And now there are 200,000 restaurants. So, you know, that, that already tells you a lot about what, you know, business and dealing with competition. Um, but I think that, you know, there's been some peaks of confidence. I think business is a lot to do with confidence, personally. I think if you're confident that things, you know, which means that the factors need to be basically lined up. But I think if there's not confidence um, in in um, a place, it's hard to figure out how to do business in it. And one of the things that I think was very strong when I first came to China um, was that there is a, an optimism and a sense of hope about the future, which means that that's a good place for business because you're basically optimistic. I don't see as much optimism, but I still still see basically there's still optimism for business in China. But, you know, the business has been much tougher. And I think that's got a lot to do with the whole world economy. I think the whole world economy has been teetering on brinks, you know, Mm. just pulled out in 2008. And... China had enormous stimulus packages. So, you know, and in Shanghai, we had the Expo and in Beijing, we had the Olympics. So enormous attention brought to China. And that, I think, gave a little bit of a cushion. And I think now we're having to deal with the harsh reality of business faltering, you know. And also there's a lot of change going on in business. So our point, you know, like I said, from my personal point of view, you know, you still have to deliver a very good product. You still have to be out, out in the, the, you know, people's consciousness. But I see that there are not the advantages for foreigners that there were. There aren't tax breaks. There aren't, you know, I think the changing Chinese economy is making the business environment a bit tougher. It's not easy to make money. I think for a while it was pretty easy. You know, if you got your basic factors right, it wasn't too difficult. And I think that is changing. What has made it tougher, Michelle? What is it that they that that they have done well, that makes it different? Um, well, there's more regulation, mm-hmm. um, and there is more. The taxes have basically the taxes are relatively stable, but the taxes are pretty high. The labor cost gets higher and higher every year. Rents are going up. So basically the cost of doing business is getting higher and higher. But because there's been a sort of flatness in the economy, it's difficult to increase prices. And I I mean, this is sort of gets into sort of economics a bit, and I'm no economist, but I sort of feel that, you know, we're flooded with, you know, cheap produce. And 
I mean, by, by produce, I mean, you know, cheaper iPhones, cheaper computers, cheaper yes. things. Mm -hmm. And so yes. the idea of prices going up doesn't really appeal to people. So prices and pricing is fairly flat, but the the um, cost of business goes up and up and up, which of course is very simple. Your margins become lower and lower. What about what about the growing disparity of wealth in China? Is that a potential problem politically as yeah. well as economically? What's happening well, about that? I don't. I don't. I don't think, I think that's very, personally, I think it's very overstated. I mean, you know, I, I'm no specialist and I'm sure that I could be ripped to pieces for saying this, but I still feel that people are basically, you know, the Chinese economy, even, it doesn't matter whose um, um, figures you take, basically the Chinese economy is growing at 7%. I mean, 7% is a whole lot more than 2%. Mm -hmm. So it is, things are changing and the middle class is growing. So the growing disparity of wealth, I don't think, is as exaggerated as it is in a place like Hong Kong. I mean, the disparity of wealth in Hong Kong is horrifying. I think in China, there is still an optimism that you, uh, you, know, you, can, you can do something, you can make your own, you can do your own thing. We had a staff party yesterday, for our, you know, our, our spring dinner, and we had a couple of old staff who we're all still good friends with, come and join us, and a Shanghai couple, she opened a restaurant five months ago, hamburgers and chips and pizza, and packed. She's doing great, she's oh, great, she's doing, having a great time. Interesting. You know, so I think that there are opportunities out there, and plenty of people are fine in China. Mm -hmm. the, I think that the this disparity of wealth is a, a more of a Western, Western world problem. There is still plenty of wealth to go around in China, and plenty of opportunities of things to be done. So I was going to tell you an anecdote, find interesting. Last night I had drinks with some people who make bras. They're one of the biggest bra shops in uh, chains in Australia, New Zealand and South Africa. Mm -hmm. And I was asking them, I'd never met this guy, but his friend, friend, and I was asking him about sort of production and do they move, you know, have they moved things? And he said, well, we do a little bit in Vietnam and Thailand. We went to look at Bangladesh. He said, we're an ethical company. There's no way we could work in Bangladesh. There was only one factory that we would consider working with and their pricing was the same as China and their lead time was four times as long. Really? He said, you know, why would you move? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that's really interesting. You know, and I think people are buying less. So I think there's many, many factors changing. But one of the things, go to back to the conversation, one of the things that is important in the world, I think, is that there is more conversation and not less conversation. And people sitting around buying online, locked up in small apartments, is not going to create more conversation. So in a way, people say, oh, aren't you worried about your business being disrupted? And I say, well, yeah, I suppose people consider around in order to take away food, but it doesn't really replace people all sitting down together over a meal and talking. Well, I think you you know I've I've said this for years that face to face conversation has become the new luxury, and now I'm starting to yeah. think, now I'm starting to think that it's almost the reverse that it may be a luxury, but in fact it's now a requirement. I mean, we really need it, as you said in the beginning, more than ever. Do you you know they I they think, yeah go ahead. No, I just feel without conversation, you cannot have a coming together. You just sit in your own box. 
and you just feel that I'm right and I don't care what everybody else thinks and there is another point of view. I so, think if you don't listen to another point of view, how can you have any idea? Yeah, I think we, we, we are all in our own little ecosystems and that, some places that's more clear than others. How accurate is the Chinese yeah. understanding of the West, in your opinion? Well, I think that there's a couple of different um, there's a couple of different levels. You know, I think if you ask at a government level, I think they've got a lot of think tanks. I think they understand it pretty clearly. Mm -hmm. um, I think that they are big players and they think big picture. Um, and I think that at that level, I think that the this is just a totally a personal opinion. I think that China feels it's not given enough credit. For doing what it's done to actually grow the entire world economy. I mean, China's been a backbone of growing the world economy for the last 30 years. And I, that, I, that's what I think. I think they don't feel, you know, a couple of times I've had conversations with fairly, you know, important people and they say, you know, why do, why do they not see it? Why do they not see what we've done? They just criticised us all the time. Mm -hmm. That's at one level. I think that at a more basic level. Um, I think that Chinese people are fairly insular. They're fairly insular in that their, their viewpoint is fairly small. And I don't just mean about China. They're fairly nationalistic anyway, but I mean, seems to be these days, but they actually are quite a closed unit, you know, like family. Your first unit is your family. A younger generation that's beginning to break down. I see much more friendship that is more widespread, broader, because of, um, you know, a hundred reasons, one-child policies, etc. But I think that that whole clan, that's beginning to break down. But there still is a clan mentality. Mm -hmm. And so that is not a Western world approach. So the West is a sort of very different thing, you know, the, the world and also as a place of you know we want to be like that you know we want nice houses with television sets and that so they still see it in a bit of an ideal way harvard university i mean harvard university is not the west but they don't really see that so i'm not sure how real understanding there is how about the other way around how well do you think westerners uh understand the chinese I think there's, personally, I think that the world is still riddled with the sort of white supremacy problem. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, that's my honest opinion, that so much, so often it's condescending and, you know, it's patronizing and it's superior. It's just a superior approach. Like, well, we know, you know, why doesn't China do this? Mm -hmm. Like, well, you know, how do you like being told why don't you do this? So I think that that is an intractable problem. Yeah. Unless, unless there's conversations. Yeah, isn't that true? Well, you know, one of the things I think is so interesting is that you don't have to spend much time in China to recognize the tremendous innovation that's taking place there. Perhaps not disruptive absolutely. in the disruptive sense, but absolutely in the evolutionary sense. Um, and and I'm I'm just fascinated. I think it's also I think it's quite disruptive. What would you point to when you think it's disruptive? Because I 
that actually the Chinese in business have a way of just cutting through whatever you need to do and just doing it. Mm -hmm. So, and the Western world, I think, thinks that's not fair. You know, they haven't gone, they haven't taken that step, that step, that step, that step that we would take. But they're like, I don't care about steps. And that is disruptive. You know, they've basically now got technology, got knowledge, got expertise. And it's like, we don't really need to give benefits to Western companies anymore to come in or to foreign companies mm-hmm. from either America or whatever. Well, in fact, isn't the intention or Germany that, or whatever. So we don't, yeah, isn't, isn't the intention really that they're trying to grow the economy internally so that they're not just the manufacturing center well, for the rest trying, of the world? Exactly. They're trying to grow domestic consumption and to grow the economy internally. So. You know, and they have to weigh, they have to do that without creating such bad pollution, which actually environment seems to have gone on the back burner, but seems to have gone on the back burner worldwide. Um, they have to try to do that without creating so many problems that people start to get too restless. And they have to basically keep up economic growth. I mean, you know, personally, I think the Communist Party has got an enormous task. And whether they can do it, you know, how they manage it. I mean, they can't do everything they want to do. That's the basic fact of it. But how they manage it and how they manage the expectations is, I think, the big, the deciding factor because it's, in my view, it's people's expectations that if you're, you know, if you don't deliver, they've also set themselves up to give people expectations so actually, everybody's got the right. You know, the Communist Party have been there saying, we will solve every single problem. So everyone's like, well, you have to solve these problems. Mm-hmm. So they're sort of stuck in a bit of a catch. Well, you, solve every you, problem. you mentioned pollution. What are the other big challenges that you think uh, the, the, the government faces in this effort to have continued growth that, that keeps its people happy? What I are the other you, stumbling blocks? I, the environment is an enormous stumbling block because you live with everyday breathing, seeing and looking. And the more middle class you become, the more you're concerned about, you know, things beyond how have you got a roof over your head and food in your mouth. Mm-hmm. So it is an enormous, It's people talk about it a lot. Um, I think the other stumbling blocks they have are how to innovate in the manufacturing world. So, you know, what to do to help the economy grow without, you know, ceramics industries and, and you know, production of, you know, steel and, and those, those sort of things. So how to move forward. And they, and they come back to environmental issues because it's like, okay, how do you innovate factory-wise or production-wise, to not create so much pollution, and the pollution is a serious issue because it's with the it's the air, the soil, the water. You know, the soil it used to be a state secret to 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 actually release information about soil. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. So it's no longer that. So you know, there's you know, in, in many ways, I think also people in the West just see China as being a totally repressive government. And, you know, I mean, you've been here. Yeah. It's loud and it's cantankerous and people argue all the time. And, you know, it's not as 
it's not as black and white as that. Well, I, I think, think that, the people yeah, have broken. I was going to ask you about that, the willingness to speak up to authority, because Westerners have this view that, as you said, that it's highly repressive. But clearly people are speaking up about pollution because we we, we see it, we read it. Um, so do you think... There are, yeah. exactly. There are, well, I mean, I think that, you know, changing the thing, not making the soil, you know, soil, dis, dis, um, soil information, state secret like you know releasing that i think actually tells you about the pressure and i think there's quite a lot of pressure in china to um you know to release information i think people are very careful to criticize the the party size at a basic level oh you know that they should do this or they should do that able to you know be too outspoken about it and i think that that is where i think we get into a sort of gray area because a lot of information just doesn't come out. I mean, so you don't get, you know, for example, there's all this sort of thing that you can't talk about, you know, sort of spreading fake news is against the law. Personally, probably be a good thing everywhere, but no but kidding. how do you control that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so how do you control that? So there are, there are sort of that... It's very hard to be... An, I'm, you know, and I don't want to be an apologist for the Communist Party, but I also feel that it's an enormous amount of people to, you know, keep under control. Yeah, no kidding. So, Michelle, this is this has all been really fascinating. Is there any other issue that you'd like to mention that you think is especially um, important regarding this whole issue of the East and the West and how we're going to how we're going to have a further conversation or any other issues that we haven't mentioned that we should think about? I think that I think that, you know, at a, at a top leadership level, there's not much any of us can do, but I think actually we have to keep all dialogue open. Mm. And I see things sort of closing down, and I personally, I see a lot of criticism against China from the West. Um, but, I, you know, in Australia, I mean, I haven't been to America for a long time, but, I mean, you know, the world media is so dominated. But I I think that there is a sort of move against China. China shouldn't do this, China shouldn't do that. I think, you know, stop preaching and start listening. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, and I'm not sure that too many people have got too much to preach about right now anyway. Well, you're I right. That's, you know, are, I guess it's the Chinese that say these are interesting times and these definitely are interesting times. <laughs> No, this is terrific. Yes, as, yeah. as usual, you've been fascinating. I really appreciate your participating in the um, Asia and the West uh, podcast. So um, more to come. I hope we can do it again. Thanks so much. That's a pleasure, Susan. That's a pleasure. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. 
There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast. That's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast. And my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.